Last year I was at a meeting where <clears throat> Frank Drown was uh, attending the meeting and he's the one of the, he was the man who led the uh, <clears throat> rescue team that went in to uh, recover the bodies of the five missionaries who were murdered in South America back in the 50s, uh, Jim Elliott and his uh, companions. And so as we were meeting there and at lunchtime, uh, Frank Drown uh, asked me, he said, you know, what kind of a Mennonite are you? Uh, he was saying, you know, there are all kinds of Mennonites. There are Mennonites who don't even know what it means to be born again. And there are Mennonites who uh, they've gotten so far from the gospel, they basically operate a, a social club. So what kind of a Mennonite are you? And I said, well, I am what you would call an old Mennonite. And he said, oh, yes, the Yoders and Millers and Stolzfuses. And, and uh, he's saying, really good people, stubborn, stubborn. And, 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 but he said, you know what? We had some of those people in South America, and they were wonderful people. And he said, they were stubborn. Uh, they were bullheaded. <clears throat> but once you got them headed in the right direction, it became an asset because they never quit. And he said, other people would give up and go home, and they'd just hang in there and say, we're going to do this. We can get this done. And he said, you, you people are wonderful people. He said, you know what? He said, I went to Iowa Mennonite School one time, and I had chapel there. And he said, I told those girls, listen, they make you wear those little white hats. You don't complain because just being a Christian makes you so different from the world that a little white hat isn't going to make that much more difference. So you just go ahead and do it and be happy about it. And, uh, you know... <coughs> Sometimes I think other people in the church and the world look at a few external things about us as conservative Mennonites, and they say, oh, yes, we know where you fit in. Uh, we know some of your characteristics. Uh, we kind of know what you do, and so you're unique, and, and we'll just leave you alone. You know, you're, you're good people, and, and you just go ahead and be good people. And sometimes that differentness and that uniqueness not only makes us feel like we don't quite fit, but it also makes other people feel like we don't quite fit. And so we struggle, I think, with that uniqueness. And this morning, as we talk about who are we and where do we fit in, I think looking at understanding who we are, we have to take a look at the past. And we have to look at, at our history. And I'm glad to hear you did that last spring. When we look at the Roman Catholic Church in the, in the feudalism in the Middle Ages, Geographical communities with the church and aristocracy in control ran a system that worked both for the church and for the government. And the church and the government sort of had a codependent relationship. They, they both utilized each other and they benefited from each other. In the Roman Catholic system, individuals had salvation by way of the sacraments. The interpretation of scripture was done by the priests and access to God was through the church and the priests. So, you have, uh, uh, we had in, in Dryden, an Anglican pastor, a few years ago, and I got into a conversation with him, and, and he was saying, you know, he cannot sign a doctrinal statement that says that hell is a really physically existent place, or that the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ are events that really happen because he was saying, you know, if you believe that and it does something for you and it helps you in your faith, that's good and that's good for you. But to really say that that happened and that those are physical realities, I, he said, I just, I, we just don't know. And, um, you know, and I'm wondering, wow. So, so if we can't depend on scripture and we don't know if we have a reliable record in scripture and we don't know whether those things are realities or not, we don't know if the resurrection really happened or not, but if I believe it, it helps me somehow. On what basis do we have salvation? And the basis on which he felt people have salvation is through the sacraments and through their involvement in the church. The Protestant Reformation came along, and there were geographical uh, church communities, but with more individualism. And you know, Calvinism really laid the groundwork then for capitalism. And the, in the, the, the status and the rights of the individual became much more predominant in the Protestant system. Martin Luther's statement that the just shall live by faith and that salvation is by faith alone 
And so it's not by the church. It's not by uh, doing the works of, of, of penance and all those things. But it's by faith. And it's, it depends on me. It's, it's, it's my faith in, in Christ that affects my salvation. And then, the, uh, and then Calvin came along and said, no, it's God who has already done our salvation. And he's the one who calls us into faith. And it's all, it's all something that God does. And he elects us to salvation and predestines us to salvation. And so then individuals had personal salvation by faith alone, uh, a personal interpretation of the newly printed Bible. And with the development of the printing press, right at the time of the Reformation, suddenly people had the scriptures in their own languages and, and the individual had much more ability to, to read scripture and, and make uh, personal interpretations of scripture. There was opportunity for individuals to have personal contact directly with God. This allowed for individualism, capitalism, and secularization. The, the, the right of the, of, of the individual has become the highest value in our Western society. In being influenced by Protestantism, we have, our society has moved to a capitalistic system, a secular system, and a system of individualism. In the founding of the United States of America, the, the rights that the founders of, of the uh, United States of America felt that we had from God are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They are individual rights. They are based on the freedom of the individual to pursue their life and to pursue happiness. And, and, and we've taken that to where it's become absurd. And our society has taken the pursuit of happiness to where it's something that is, is and, and the rights of the individual to the point of absurdity. Discussions in our society around same-sex marriage, assisted suicide, abortion, and divorce all revolve around the right of the individual to choose what they feel is best for themselves regardless of the pain or consequences for others with whom they are in relationship with. And that is a direct result, I believe, of Protestant thought and Protestant thinking. Ron Sider, in uh, the April issue of this year of, of Christianity Today, makes these comments about the evangelical church he says, we need to rethink our theology. We need to ask, are we really biblical? Cheap grace is at the core of the problem. Cheap grace results when we reduce the gospel to forgiveness of sins only. And you see, that's, that's at the heart of, of Protestant theological thought. When, then he goes on to say, when we limit salvation to personal fire insurance against hell, when we misunderstand persons primarily as souls, when we at best grasp only half of what the Bible says about sin, when we embrace individualism and materialism and relativism of our current culture. We also lack a biblical understanding and practice of the church. I would think that evangelicals would want to get biblical and define the gospel the way Jesus did, which is that it's the good news of the kingdom. Then we see that it means that the way to get into this kingdom is through the unconditional grace because Jesus died for us. It also means that there is now a, a new kingdom of community of Jesus' disciples, and that embracing Jesus means not getting fire insurance so one doesn't go to hell, but it means embracing Jesus as Lord as well as Savior. And it means beginning to live as a part of his new community where everything is being transformed. There's no question that's what's at the core of it. We tend to reduce salvation to just forgiveness of sins, and in the New Testament, salvation means that, but it also means a new transformed life that's possible in the power of the Spirit and the new communal existence of the body of believers. Salvation is a lot more than just a new relationship with God through forgiveness of sins, it's a new transformed lifestyle that you can see with the visible body of believers. And I would say that is at the heart and core of, who, of, of where we are unique and where we stand. And the real unique characteristics of, conservative Mennonite, of the conservative Mennonite church is not the way we dress and the externals, but there are, there are essential elements of our theology that separate us from the Protestant church. The Anabaptists took a third road then, individual salvation, individual interpretation of scripture and access to God, but accountability within the community. And so Martin Luther actually said that Anabaptism was a return to monasticism because he's saying what you're doing is you're taking away the individualism and you're going back into, in, into the monasteries, kind of into a communal life, and some Anabaptists did that. <clears throat> The four issues, main issue of issues of Anabaptism were a biblicism, simple and literal interpretation of scripture, discipleship as the essence of Christianity, a disciplined believer's church, and non-resistance. And I would like to look at those uh, four points 
a little more this morning. First of all, let's look at Biblicism, a simple and literal interpretation of Scripture. We believe that the Holy Spirit aids all believers in understanding and applying the truths of Scripture in their lives. When the Bible instructs us to practice a thing, we actually attempt to do it. Uh, two years ago, I met with uh, the Grand Chief of the Anishinaabe Aski Nation, which is a federation of 49 communities in northwestern Ontario, and he made an interesting comment to me. He said, you know, Merle, one of the things that we see about you Mennonite people is that you not only teach us the Bible, but you also make an honest effort to live what you say the Bible teaches. And he's saying there are many people who come into our communities and they whip up a lot of emotional fervor and they get people all excited and they tell people, if you give $100 in the offering, God's going to bless you with 1000 And so, you know, you just give. And, and they take an offering. They leave the community with the money. And the people are worse off than they were before. And he's saying, one of the things that we see about you Mennonite people is that you make an honest effort to live what you say the Bible teaches. And I think that we, I think that that's true of us. I think we do make an honest effort. Do we do it perfectly? No, we don't. But we try. And it's, it's part of our, our belief that when we, the Bible says something, we do it. And so peace and non-resistance, we take seriously. The headship veiling, we take seriously. Not taking of oaths, we, we practice, we put that into practice. Uh, excommunication from the church. When we read things in Scripture, we make an honest effort to apply it and to do it in our lives. Now, alongside of that, we have often avoided the study of theology in favor of a simple and literal interpretation of Scripture. And so it's not uncommon in our communities to hear derogatory comments made about seminaries when in fact we're unable to articulate our own theology and really be able to say what we believe. And so I think that we have to acknowledge the fact that we suffer from fuzzy theology. And we kind of know how it's done. And we kind of know what it looks like and we grew up in the system, most of us, and so we were acclimated. But to put it into words and to find the scripture passages and say, this is why we do it, uh, we, we hope the pastor's around and we can kind of say, well, you know, here, uh, ask him. Or, or we, we were hoping, if we're in a group and somebody comes up to us and says, you know, why do you do that? We, all, what, we take a deep breath and hope somebody else starts talking, right? And um, because we, don't, we, we tend to be weak in being able to say, express our theology. I've been in, in mission settings, and one of the opportunities that I've had is to be able to live with people of different cultures, and I think that one of the things that gives you insights into your own culture is to view it from the other side, and then from when you're with people who, who live in a, in a different culture. And you know, I, I've had people in, 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 in other cultures say to me, you know, why don't, why don't we as Mennonites know what we believe? They were saying, you know, we, we talk to the, the Baptists, and, and, and they know what they believe, and we talk to the Methodists, and they know what they believe, and you talk to the Church of God, and they know what they believe. But, you know, when we ask, you know, so, and when they ask us, uh, so what makes, what do you believe as Mennonites? They're saying, we're kind of, we don't know what to say. And we need to, um, we often are weak in being able to put our theology into understanding uh, our theology and being able to put it into words. Secondly, discipleship is the essence of Christianity and a disciple uh, believer's church. I'm going to put these two together. Um, inclusion in the church is not determined by geography. Uh, there's separation of church and state. The Roman Catholic view is that the church and state, or was, that the church and state overlap, but that the church is predominant. And so you had the, the, the popes uh, sort of giving instructions to the kings, and the kings were of, of France, and some of those places that sometimes were kind of under the domination of the popes. And and so the Catholic view was that, yes, there's, an over, there's the responsibilities of the church and the responsibilities of the state, and there's some areas where they overlap, and where they overlap, the church has authority. And the church should be the ones who make the decisions in those areas. The reformers came along, Zwingli and some of them, and they said, yes, there's responsibilities of the church, responsibilities of the state, there's overlap, but where they overlap, the state decides. And so Zwingli agreed with Conrad Grebel and some of the others that, yes, they should do away with the mass. Yes, they should take the images out of the churches. Yes, they should do those things. But as long as the city council wouldn't give approval, he wasn't willing to do it. And so his view was that where there's overlap, the state makes the decision and the church is responsible to the state. The Anabaptists came along with really, as, as, as the ones who came along with the concept that there is, 
complete separation of church and state and that the believer's primary allegiance is to the church. Richard Hughes, in the book Myths America Lives By, says this, if people in the Reformed tradition sought to transform culture into a Christian civilization, the Anabaptists completely rejected any such notion. From their perspective, a Christianized culture was a contradiction in terms, since nations were inevitably full of people who would never conform themselves to the moral disciplines of the Christian faith. One might therefore hope for a Christian church, a community of voluntary believers, but one could not realistically hope for a Christian nation. And you see, where we are investing our time and energies in contrast to much of the evangelical and Protestant church in North America is that we are not trying to Christianize the United States of America or Canada. We are not trying to bring America back to its Christian roots. I'm sorry, but America doesn't have Christian roots. And so we are, we, we are saying it's about the church and it's about building the kingdom of God and getting people actively involved in, 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 a, in a community of voluntary, disciplined disciples of Christ who have chosen to follow Christ, who are living the transformed life, who know what it means to be born again, and who have been transformed at the very core of their being in their heart, and who have a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we never expect the nation to be a Christian nation. We never expect the nation to operate on Christian principles. And so we're grieved when the nation goes to war, but we're not in Washington demonstrating, trying to get the nation not to go to war. Because we need to be so busy trying to change people's hearts and to, and to see people come to Christ that we don't have time to get involved in the political kingdoms of the world. We believe in two gates that open onto two paths that lead to two destinies. Scripture says, For ye enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be, in the, many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be... That find it. The church is not made up of everyone in a geographical region. It does not attempt to bring members into the church and then encourage them to walk on the straight and narrow way. You see, our, our view is that the church is made up of those who have entered at the straight gate and who are walking in the narrow way and who voluntarily choose to be a part of the church community. Discipleship and salvation cannot be separated. We don't experience salvation and then have the option of discipleship. Menno Simon said, where there is no cross, there is no Christian. And basically what he was saying is where there's no discipleship, there hasn't been the new birth. And so in contrast to much of the evangelical and Protestant church in North America, we are not trying to, to, to have people experience uh, uh, some legal transaction in their hearts that God does and then somehow influence them not to be carnal Christians. And so, you know, the, the thought that there are, are three types of people and that there's the unbelievers and then there's carnal Christians and then there's real Christians and that you can be a carnal Christian for 40 years and be a part of the church and be, you know, saved and all that. Your salvation is sealed and your destiny is secure, but you can live a carnal life and live in immorality and all those things and then somehow 40 years after 40 years of doing that, God breaks into your life and you, you really get serious about discipleship. And, and that concept is, is, is so uh, foreign to us as, as, uh, as Anabaptist Christians. We walk on the narrow way in the company of others. The essence of the of our theology is that we need each other in the brotherhood. The salvation experience is the entrance through the narrow gate which automatically sets your feet on this, uh, on the, the entrance through the straight gate which automatically sets your feet on the narrow way which if you stay on that narrow way leads you to your eternal destiny. You cannot enter in at the straight gate and then walk on the broad way. The straight gate does not enter onto the broad way. It enters on to the narrow way. We need each other and the accountability of the body of Christ and the brotherhood in order to walk on that narrow way. Robert Friedman said this about, um, he said, the central idea of Anabaptism, the real dynamite of the Reformation as I see it, was this, that one cannot find salvation without caring for his brother, that this brother actually matters in the personal life, 
This interdependence of men gives life and salvation a new meaning. It is not faith alone which matters, but it is brotherhood. This intimate caring for each other, as was commanded to the disciples of Christ, as the way to God's kingdom. And I will tell you this morning that in Dryden, we have a group of six men that I'm a part of who meet on a regular basis. And we sit down and we share from our lives, our marriages, our relationships with our children, things that we are honest with each other. And when I get back from trips, those men ask me about my spiritual faithfulness, about my morality, about how I conducted myself. And those men look me in the eye and ask me personal questions, and I'm committed to being honest with them. And I would not come here and do the ministry that I do without, I'd be scared to do it without the accountability of the brotherhood. And you know what I really treasure about those men? I'm not the guest speaker. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm nobody special. I'm just Merle. And they know me, and they know the challenges I have, and they know some of the struggles I'm facing, and they know some of the things that I wish were different in my life. And uh, without that brotherhood, I wouldn't. Uh, I couldn't do it. And the essence of our theology and understanding of the church is that we are part of a brotherhood and we have an accountability to one another. So we reject both the Roman Catholic and Protestant view of salvation. Salvation is not a legal transaction done between God and the devil that's finished and, and our salvation is permanently secured. We reject the Roman Catholic and Anglican view that salvation is made effective through the partaking of the sacraments. We believe that salvation is about a relationship with a living Christ who impacts and changes our lives in ways that we could never accomplish on our own. We believe that it's the direction of our heart toward God that makes our salvation a continuing reality. It's not on the basis of a legal transaction or on the basis of a faithful adherence to a list of do's and don'ts, but it's about relationship with the living Christ and relationships within the brotherhood. We add to that peace and non-resistance. We take this position from the teachings of Jesus. We take our position from the example of Jesus in his arrest and trial, his suffering and death, and we take our position from the teaching of the apostles. I believe that if you would look at uh, what's called the universal church and you would look at the body of Christ at large, people from all denominations say, where do we fit? We fit. I believe that we have a very important role in the body of Christ. I think in some ways there are times when we function as the hands of the church and we go and do the things that need to be done because we see people as more than souls. We see them as human beings who need compassionate care. I believe there are times when we are the conscience of the church and we call the church to morality and to holiness and we demonstrate the power of peace and non-resistance in everyday life and in community. So where do we fit? We don't fit with the Roman Catholic or Anglican churches. We don't fit with the reformers such as the Lutheran or Reformed churches. And we don't fit with the Protestant evangelical churches of North America. We are unique. We have a unique theology. We have a unique history. We have a unique understanding of the church and of salvation and of a disciplined Christian life. And I believe that just as it was tremendously essential for the Anabaptist church to take a stand in contrast to what was happening in the Reformation period in the Roman Catholic and Reformed churches, it is just as essential that we as Anabaptist people stand for holiness, for peace and unresistance, and for literally applying the principles of Scripture in our lives. I appreciate very much the introduction we've had that was first historical, and then it was somewhat theological, became very practical, and uh, there's a sense in which I would be very content to just leave it at this place, and yet the uh, assignments were rather broad, rather general, and I think that we can't perhaps profit to continue uh, along this line. And one of the things that was mentioned in the course of the, the uh, earlier, that Brother Merle was speaking, was that somebody observed that Mennonites were very diverse, 
and how true that is. And even in this group this morning, there's a, a certain amount of diversity. I'd like to think that we are very uh, together in our basic principles and commitment as far as that's concerned. But I did uh, decide to bring something along that I think addresses that. Didn't know when or for sure if I would do it. But I hold in my hand several or two yearbooks and they're relatively recent. Uh, it used to be that uh, Mennonite Church uh, brought a yearbook out that included not only the MCs, as they were called, but also a lot of us uh, who are not mainstream. But uh, when the merger went into effect, why, they discontinued that. And so Christian Light uh, comes out with a yearbook, and I'm interested in the way that uh, the people that are identified, who they're trying to include in this yearbook. And I'm going to read a short paragraph from uh, the publisher. We are happy to present this information as a useful reference source. It is not intended to classify churches or to imply organizational ties between any groups listed. In these days of moral decadence and spiritual apostasy, it is our desire to uphold the doctrines of scriptures of the scriptures as historically taught by the Mennonite church, such as separation from the world, non-resistance, separation of church and state, permanence, permanence of marriage, the Christian woman's veiling, moral purity, and leadership of man. Our goal is to include in the book those churches whom we understand to be practicing the same and whose teachings are, most, are the most alike. Now, there's just a little bit additional there that I'm not reading. But uh, the interesting thing, there were still groups who were not mainstream and who were not included in this yearbook. And so we have a second yearbook now that's uh, just a couple of years in print. Maybe 204, I think, may have been, or 04 was the first one. I'm not quite sure. And Sword and Trumpet put that one together. And they are conservative Mennonites. Well, how conservative are they? How come they weren't included in the other book? Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to, uh, to ponder. And uh, I noticed in the table of contents, there were 22 entries in the first one I referred to and 20 in this one. And, uh, and so there are uh, considerable numbers of people who don't identify with mainstream and uh, the um, now here is what uh, the Sword and Trumpet book, uh, yearbook says. It is attempting to list those groupings of, and congregations that are, that are excluded from the two directories named above. It is hoped that the identification of the congregation or grouping by their statement of faith will give readers sufficient classification of their standing in the Anabaptist slash Mennonite world. As indicated in the congregational information, the churches listed herein have endorsed one or more of the following statements of faith. Schleitheim, Dortrecht, Mennonite, 63, and uh, several other more recent statements. And so uh, I guess we're still sort of looking at the question, where do we fit? And uh, I uh, do appreciate a great deal the planning and forethought that has gone into this program. And I am assuming it was hard work. And uh, I would say, however, it was perhaps not as, it was more, it was more easy than, than the part we're in now in some ways. But it occurs to me that the hardest part remains after we leave, leave, leave here. You know, how to put these things into practice is, is really the challenge. And um, I appreciated the references already that we're not here in one sense to promote Anabaptism. You know, we're pretty suspicious uh, of the term of the isms. Well, is it okay to be a little suspicious about Anabaptism? Well, I, I don't think so, and yet I think we need to be a little bit careful because we have, uh, just by virtue of being human, we have a tendency to perhaps eulogize that that isn't very close to us. You know, we can comfortably look up to people who are no longer with us sometimes more easily than when they are with us. But uh, let's, uh, well, I'm reminded of the, of the carpenter who will uh, cut a rafter, and he measures it very carefully, very 
you know, it has to be just so. And then uh, he, has, he needs perhaps a dozen or several dozen other rafters just like it. Well, what does he do? He uses this rafter and he marks the other rafters. He doesn't use the initial and then marks and uses number two for a pattern. Because if he did that, by the time he got to the end, it would no longer be like the original. There would be slight variations, slight, uh, you know, deviations from the original. And I believe that we as committed Anabaptists, and I don't hesitate to use that term, that we need to look beyond the Anabaptists and see the original pattern. It's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Menno Simons, by the way, he had a key verse. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that, that uh, the name of Jesus is, to be, is above every name. Not only that can be named in this world, but that which is to come. And ultimately, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and acknowledge him as, as uh, Christ. Uh, that, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, if I say it right. I, uh, I would hope then that our deliberations here are based on these two very primary considerations that Jesus Christ is Lord and God's word is truth. Remember that our Lord included that in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. I appreciated very much the, the intention of this uh, workshop, I guess it's called, and uh, Brother Steve has mentioned that we are here to cultivate gratitude for the blessings that have come to us through our forebears. We are here to, to, call, or to uh, highlight the need for repentance where that's necessary. And uh, also for uh, courage and for responsibility. Those are the key words that, are, that have been given us. Where, we do, where do we fit? Let's talk a little bit about conservatism. I suppose if I were to ask for a show of hands of how many conservatives are here this morning, I'm assuming we'd get a pretty unanimous response. I'm going to ask a couple of questions that may sound a little unsettling at first, but I'm, the question is this, was Jesus conservative? Was he liberal? Well, uh, what do we mean when we use the term conservative? It occurs to me that as you study the life of Jesus, that he was in one respect very generous and very liberal because he would reach out, he would notice people that other people didn't notice. If they were downtrodden, if they were forsaken, he would reach out to them extend them a helping hand, and very generous. And uh, the, the uh, invitation of scripture is, whosoever will may come. Him that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. And so that's the side of generosity, and I think in some respects it's a liberal characteristic. But there's another side to Jesus, and I, know, I want to say also it's very inclusive. But I want, to, I want us to notice as well that he is at a certain point also very exclusive. And perhaps we could say that he is then conservative. Uh, when he says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh to the Father but by me. And that's offensive to a lot of people nowadays. Why be that exclusive in this enlightened age? But uh, we need not argue about that. And so it seems to me as followers of Jesus that we are also both liberal and conservative. And by being liberal simply means that we are, have a generous spirit. We're willing to reach out and help others. But we're not liberal in the sense that we feel that we are at liberty to make the scriptures say what we want them to say. It is rather the reverse that we begin with the idea that God's word is truth. And we recognize that where our lives are not in compliance with that message of truth, then we want to change. We don't want to try to change the scriptures. <clears throat> well, 
Jesus' mission was quite simply to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. And I would say that in my, my impression is that this meeting is about truth. It's, and truth is something that we, we want to respect very highly. Last evening at the supper table, one of the brethren mentioned that he thought it was offensive nowadays in some academic circles to even use the word truth. After all, there is something a little bit, uh, how do I say, a little bit threatening to some, uh, some people when we talk about truth. After all, isn't truth kind of what we decide it ought to be? No, that's not it at all. Truth is unyielding. It is, it is fact. It is something that we respect and uh, we, uh, we recognize it as such. But it occurs to me that, that we need to remind ourselves from time to time that truth is for all people. And we, as conservative Anabaptists, don't have a monopoly on God's truth. And if we do, perchance, have some blind spots, well, blind spots are by, by definition just that. We wouldn't be the first to notice. And so I would appeal to us this morning that we cultivate an openness to truth. And something rather interesting happened. I hadn't thought of, of mentioning this but it is not related to what we're trying to do except as it relates to truth. But a certain man whose name is, uh, first name is almost Anthony, not quite, and he's spelled a little bit different, Anthony Flew, I'm gonna use it, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it, his name really. Flew, F-L-E-W. And others of you may have noticed that uh, he has been getting some press uh, recently in the news media. And the reason is that he was a, a famous, atheist, and uh, I'm told that his books were pretty much standard fare for the college age, for the colleges uh, throughout uh, Western, Western world. He was a British person, if I remember right. But he had a commitment, and his commitment was that he was committed to truth wherever it led him, and it led him in an interesting path. He got to the place where he was studying the DNA, and please don't ask me much about it, I know that there is something like that. And he came to the conclusion that there has to be an intelligent design about, behind this. And this sent shockwaves throughout the academic community, especially the atheistic community. And somebody wrote about it and said it put them in a, in a situation of damage control you know, how can an enlightened man, man say something like that? And mark this down, he's not a Christian, but his commitment to truth led him away from atheism and away from evolution as far as uh, our world is concerned. Well, <clears throat> I would also like to say that in a meeting like this, I'm sure that we're not here to point out negatives of other people and we're not, certainly not in the business of name calling or um, finger pointing. But having said that, I hope that we were not committed to generalities and abstractions that makes it difficult for us to understand uh, what we're talking about. As Brother Merle was speaking, I thought of something that I, again, hadn't known for sure that I would mention, I think I shall. But uh, we live in central Kansas and we're fairly close to about three Mennonite colleges there, I mean, an hour or a little more. And one of uh, those colleges, the instructor likes to bring his Anabaptist history students to visit the churches there. And uh, in the, the most recent visit, he had his students write down reflections and impressions. And then he gave his, his impressions. By the way, this is a person with, uh, was born into an Amish family, and as a young person, he joined the Mennonite church, and his family later joined. Now he's an instructor, retirement age, over at Heston College. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, the, the students reported their impressions as they had visited Cedar Crest, in this case, the neighboring church, our church, 
where we go. Uh, they were impressed with the spirit of, uh, of welcome and warmth that they felt. They hadn't quite anticipated that. And I'm, I'm sure that there are reasons why they hadn't quite anticipated that. They also reflected on the, I mean, the students uh, mentioned how that it's obvious that to not have television in the home, it would be an advantage. But they would find it very difficult to do without. And there were other things. Uh, and there was one thing, I think, mildly uh, negative. I think they felt we could have been a little more active in the public arena than we are, as far as influencing the government and so on is concerned. But Marion had this to say. And he said there are some fine, some dedicated students, and he wants to acknowledge that. But by and large, he said, the church has very little influence on the young people. Individualism has pretty well taken over. And he mentioned also the profound influence of TV in the home. And I think that perhaps can be pertinent to some of the things that we're looking at. Who are we? Where we do, do we fit in? And uh, I think Merle mentioned we don't quite fit. And maybe it should not be our primary uh, motivation to be sure we fit in. Maybe we need to concern ourselves more with faithfulness and let the Lord uh, take it from there. The, uh, one of the questions, is Anabaptism the only valid expression of Christianity? And we do well to, uh, I'm, I'm sure we do well to look at that. And it assumes, of course, it is valid. And it's also raising the possibility maybe it isn't the only one. Well, why do we differ from, from uh, the church mainstream? And uh, I think that would help us, perhaps, to identify some of these things. Well, mainstream Christianity pretty much allows contemporary culture to dictate lifestyle. And uh, if we begin with that assumption that we are to fit in, we're going to come out differently than if we begin with God's formula and then don't worry so much about fitting in. Now, it's true that our witness should be pertinent. It should touch people where they are. And yet there is still a very basic enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It will always be that way. And so let's not assume that there can be reconciliation between the church and the world. It's not, it's not in the works. Uh, <clears throat> we believe that Christian culture should reflect the Father's kingdom, otherworldly priorities. Well, <clears throat> how are we different? That's part of the question. Well, let's look at it this way. What if we were suddenly to accept, um, I'm going to call it mainstream evangelicalism or Protestantism, and there is a difference, but we're not here to make that difference now. What difference would it make? I was interested in the article that Brother Merle read from, from Christianity Today. I noticed it too. And one of the things that, that uh, Ron Sider laments, he said, why is it that the church has essentially the same uh, statistics as the non-church community in terms of divorce and remarriage and some other problems like that. Why is it? And he is speaking, I guess, as an Anabaptist, but uh, certainly mainstream compared to the group that is assembled here. Um, what difference would it make if suddenly we were to become like that? Well, there is a stability when, when Jesus said, I will build my church, I think that one of, the, one of the characteristics of the church is stability. And that can hardly be said of our culture. It's, hardly, it's not really very stable, certainly not in terms of some of its practices. Um, we have changing styles 
and it involves issues of modesty, of sex distinction, of uh, cut hair for the women, loss of the permanence and integrity of marriage. It would bring in TV, and uh, I'm assuming that I'm speaking to an audience where that is not the practice. But uh, all those things speak of cultural mainstream. It sort of speaks of a willingness to adapt and to belong. But it doesn't seem, from this perspective, to give priority consideration to what does the Bible say? What would Jesus do? What does this have to do with the way of the cross? Now, I recognize that on the idea of separation, there are certainly different applications, even different ones represented here. Uh, just for curiosity, it would be interesting to me to know how many different groups are represented here this morning. This is not a large group as audiences go, but I'm assuming that there will be quite a few different uh, groups. And that in itself is not so serious. But when our differences become a matter of competition and become the, the occasion of, for bad attitudes, then it's something to be concerned about. Uh, I appreciate, I was never at Faith uh, Builders before, but I appreciate the, the concept here to have a facility and an organization that will reach out to a, a conservative community to uh, further these, these, uh, these stated interests. Now, if conservatism is good, is, is it, does it follow that the more the better? You know, uh, what I uh, referred to here, these, these uh, yearbooks don't include, as far as I know, any old order groups. And their numbers are pretty significant. Old Order Amish especially, but we have Old Order Mennonites as well. And, uh, and they would look at us and say, conservative? Not so sure. Well, um, I think we do well to realize that there are principles to be expressed, and uh, there are ways in which to express them that uh, are appropriate, and I suppose a lot of us feel that the way we see things is about the middle of the road, I would assume that, and others a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit off balance. But uh, let's face it, there are large numbers of people with an Anabaptist heritage who are more conservative than we are. And in some cases it would seem that uh, they're quite isolationist, perhaps pretty irrelevant to reality. And yet I think we should not be judgmental. Let me just re recount one instance that uh, comes to mind. Several years ago, my wife had a contact with a, a person who was interested in genealogy, her, her branch, her maiden, not her maiden name, but she traces to the Shetlers. Here was a man, I'm going to go ahead and name him, I don't think it hurts anything. His name was Emery Shetler, he lived at Utica, Ohio. And we were traveling close by, we decided to look him up because he had some records that Mary was interested in. And we did that. And a uh, very friendly person and so on. He wanted to know who I was. And so, uh, I, mean, history, I mean, genetically. So I told him the name of my great-grandfathers and so on. Oh, Mast? He said, uh, have, uh, are you related to the man who wrote the book, uh, Salvation Full and Free? Of course, in German, it's On Weissen zur Seligkeit said, yes, he was my great-grandfather. And I was totally surprised. This was a Swartzentur-Ramish person. You know what Swartzentur-Ramish are? You know who they are? No? Well, they are not old, old order. They are super old order. <laughs> and they distance themselves from old orders because they're that old order. And, uh, and I was surprised because Dan Mass wrote with, uh, well, I have said already, that he stayed in the Amish church during the period of the Great Awakening, you know, from the late uh, 1800s into the 1900s when revival meetings came on and, uh, and Sunday school was reintroduced in some cases. And it was just, uh, historians call that the Great Awakening. And I have said Dan Mast 
uh, he was aware of that and participated in it in his own mind. But uh, he stayed Amish and he, he was very influential. And here I discovered this book being read by Emory Shetler from Utica High. I said, do you agree with it? He said, yes. I think most of our people would. And I just had to confess that I don't know those people. I don't know how many of those people God has called and how many belong to him. But let me say this, that we are seen, and maybe we more than some of you here, uh, people wonder, what do you think of other people who are, are church people and are professing Christians? I remember a group of retirees asking me that one time. I mean, somebody in the group. They, of course, I was supposed to tell them who we were and so on. What do you think about other people? You know, there are those Anabaptists who say that we are the church and uh, other people are not the church. And uh, I answered this way. I said, the Lord who knows the numbers of hair on our head doesn't really need our help to keep track of who belongs to him. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And, uh, and so let's not be judgmental in our response. There are several other things that I think we do well too as we try to, to discover where we fit in. I think of something that Irvin Hirschberger told me one time. I'm assuming a lot of you would have known Irvin Hirschberger. His daughter was in high school and one of the instructors sent word home with Mildred and said, I'd like to have an answer from her dad on two points. Why do the women wear the covering like they do and why don't other people, why don't other Christians wear that covering? and do something like that. And so Irvin very carefully answered the first part. But what did he do about the second part? He said, that's not my question. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.